You are listening to Devils and Dirtbags, Season 1, Child Molesting Priests, Episode 15, Richard Levine Got Away with Murder, Part 2. Today, we are going to be speaking to a woman we're calling Sarah about her husband, who we'll call Nick, about his abuse by the murderer and child molesting priest, Richard Levine. We'll listen to the entire conversation with just a handful of quick interruptions to provide context to the story. After some small talk, I ask her to explain her husband's relationship with the murderer Richard Levine back in the early 1970s. Well, my husband was an altar boy along with his siblings, and Father Levine, of course, was a big person in the Catholic Church over there. He was a priest, and he was very popular. And if you were an altar boy or a family that attended church there, if Father Levine if he picked you as one of his altar boys to serve, like, funeral masses and things like that that weren't, like, customary every Sunday, although my husband did those too, um, you were special. And so my husband was often picked to serve funeral masses or holy day masses, weddings, funerals. And then afterwards, my husband would be back in the rectory after church, after the service, and Father Levine would give him church wine. And that was like a big deal, like, oh, please give me church wine. And then my husband, and he was young, felt almost compelled from what he's told me to do whatever Father Levine wanted him to do, or he would be in trouble. So it would start as that. And um, my husband was the same age as Danny Croto and knew him because of of being an altar boy. They didn't serve at the same churches, but they would get together. Father Levine would have little gatherings of them and such and drink church wine and go fishing and do things. And anytime my husband was invited to go fishing or to go on a camping trip for the weekend, um, he, of my, his parents would say, absolutely, that's perfect, go right ahead, and that's where, like, most of his abuse would would happen. It didn't happen at the church. It would happen on fishing trips or camping trips um, at a home that Levine would take them to up in Ashfield, Massachusetts. Excuse me here. I just want to break in for one second. That's the A-frame in Ashfield, so your husband went to that A-frame. Yes, he sure did. He slept overnight there on a weekend. Um, That's one of a huge um, memory that he has of the abuse. Um, 
he told me that when they first got there, um, Levine kind of made them all comfortable and gave them something to drink, of course, and then told, gave them binoculars and told them if they looked out the window, they could see the woman down the hill who would sunbathe in the nude in her yard. And my husband was like 13, 12, and he would, all the kids would take turns looking at this woman, and then it would be a big sleepover on the weekends, and it was the eighth frame in Ashfield, Mass. He absolutely remembers that. So he would, they went there, he um, would take them fishing, camping, um, he remembers a, a time he took him fishing, and it was just my husband alone with him at that time, it was really scary. Um, he doesn't remember exactly how old he was at this point, but he guessed uh, between like 13, 14, and they went fishing um, somewhere, and he doesn't know, he doesn't remember where. My husband has a lot of his memories are, um, they come in like waves, and then he has to really work hard to try and remember details. But this one he remembers because um, Father Levine had given him a gold fishing lure to use on this fishing trip. Um, so he was pretty excited because his fishing lure, I guess, was really cool. And my husband um, fished with it, and it got caught in the branches. And after that, Levine instructed him um, to go get it. But in order to do so, he had to remove his clothing. So that was really a, a tough memory um, for him because obviously he, that was, he was abused right after that. So when he talked about when he remembered that, he remembered a few other times and then that particular A-frame came in back into his memory. He had a hard time remembering stuff. That, it, that was the worst part for him because he knew what was happening or what had happened to him but his mind just blocked it out the getting drunk he would feed them church wine constantly um, and then beer um, he would feed them beers and they would get really drunk and and then he like memories would block out but that's when he would be molested and, and up in Ashfield two of his brothers were actually there as well with him at this point, but he doesn't know if they were also molested, but he remembers looking at that woman with the binoculars, which is horrible. This fulfills a pattern, bringing kids up to Ashfield, again, another part of his modus operandi, getting them drunk. He did that frequently. Did your husband ever talk about this with his parents or anyone else when, when he was a boy? Never. He never told his parents... Um, because he thought it was his fault. So he did tell me that he would cry himself to sleep at night and ask God why this is happening to him. Because at that point, he really, before this all happened, he had enjoyed going to church and he went to Catholic school and he liked it. Um, and so he kept saying, why, God, why? And then he kept saying, I must have done something for you to allow this to happen to me. And um, it's just, that was why he was just, wrecked from it. So he never told his parents. Levine told him not to tell anybody. That was the other thing. But he just literally thought that it was all his fault and that that was why it was happening to him. He did tell his parents, though, um, probably about 14 years ago. And uh, of course, his parents are, are quite a bit. I mean, they're really elderly now. Um, but when he told them, 
they, my mother-in-law said, you were never alone with him. You were never alone with him. She kept repeating that over and over. You were never alone with him. You were never alone with him. And my father-in-law just told me to get a good attorney because if you're going to go after the church, you need a good attorney. That's what he said. And he never got that support or that acknowledgement that he was, this happened to him. That no, I'm, I'm so sorry. None of that. His mother's response, that's quite interesting. I mean, again, just because my personal knowledge of the family, there are a bunch of kids in that house. Yeah, there's a lot, nine of them. Yeah, so how um, the mother would be able to know, and we know as an altar boy, you're often alone with the priest. That must have hurt him even more. I mean, that's the thing that's so sad about this on multiple layers, the fact that he beat himself up as a young boy, thinking it was his fault, the fact that he couldn't tell anybody, the fact that he felt so alone that God abandoned him, and then many years later, get what I would imagine would have required a lot of courage to tell his parents and then to have that as a response. Absolutely. That was the hardest. I, that was so hard for him. I mean, I think it was hard for him to tell me, but to go to his parents, that was huge. And it, it didn't turn out the way that he had hoped. And so he just doesn't ever talk about it with them anymore, ever. How did he tell you when and where, and how did that come up? So my father passed away 15 years ago, and... My my mom had, she was up kind of sickly a lot. She ended up passing away from Alzheimer's. And so the priest came to the house to help my mother with the funeral arrangement, picking out the signs, the scriptures, whatever. So the priest came in the door, and he was dressed in his stuff. And my husband was standing there, and I saw the look on his face, but I didn't, I had no idea. Like, I just thought he was thinking, oh, a priest is here, that's weird. And so the priest came in the living room with my mother, and they were talking, and then I went in there, and I was helping my mother with this stuff. And then I came out, and my husband was outside smoking a cigarette, and he was, like, pacing back and forth, and he's like, why is he here? Why is that priest here? I'm like, well, he's here to do the funeral stuff. And he didn't say anything else. So later that evening, he was on the computer, and I walked by, and I just happened to notice that he was. That there was an article up on the screen about Danny Cardo, and I said, who's that? And he's like, nothing, and he shut the computer down. And it took a little while, and then I was like, I need to know what that was, because it was so odd the way he acted. Of course, I looked it up, and I didn't say anything to him, and then we went through with my dad's wake and then the church, the funeral in the church after that when we got done with burial and everything he again, I caught him he was not not that I was looking to catch him but he just happened to be on the computer again looking up this Danny Cloto case so I asked him and I said what is that that you keep on looking at and he's like it's nothing, it's nothing and then he just like with, I would say over the next week he started opening up to me and he said, I'm, I'm having these crazy memories coming into my head. I don't know what's going on with me, but something triggered it. I think it was the priest. And I'm like, well, what, is, what, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you know, this, this priest, he was a priest at my church when I was a kid, and I was an altar boy, and I think he molested me. And I said, what? And that was the first time he opened up about it to me. And the more 
he started looking into it, these memories started popping up, and then he would tell me a little bit more. And he would say, yep, I remember doing this. Yep, this is the guy. This is him. This is what happened. And at that time, too, I think there were, um, I'm not sure when the big um, announcement came from the Boston Globe um, reporters, but it was like, for some reason, it was like, like a bunch of stuff was popping up about this, about everything at that time. So here's the timeline. Sarah's dad died in 2007. At this point, Sarah and Nick, who was then 48, had been married for 11 years and had five kids together. By then, Levine had been defrocked for a couple of years, and around the same time, the Springfield Diocese was fighting their insurance companies in court because the insurers wouldn't pay the millions in settlements the diocese had made because of Levine, Father X, and other clergy. So there were frequent media updates on Levine and other child-molesting priests in the local media. My husband's very quiet, and he'll have like his good days and his bad days, and I feel like around that time, you know, we were going through different things. My, our youngest son has autism, um, and we were dealing with that, and um, he would just shut down and walk away from a lot of stuff, and he would drink a lot, and it was getting progressively worse. Your husband's relationship with alcohol obviously started at the hands of Father Levine with the holy wine and then followed by beer. Yes, 100%. What's his relationship with alcohol like now? It's horrible. He drinks every single day. And honestly, um, he's tried on his own to stop. He's very hesitant to go get help. Um, it's like ripping off a scab, I feel like, because um, he hides behind it. Um, he, I, I, he usually starts drinking at 7 o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to lie. He'll crack his first beer at 7 in the morning and just continue on all day. Um, and ever since... Levine passed away, it's gotten even worse. It's like a 30-pack a day. It's going, going out my <laughs> going down his throat. Since Levine has died, he drinks about 30 beers a day. Yep. Is he still working or is he retired? He still works, but because of COVID, he works from home. And if you want to meet a functional drunk, you can meet him because he can absolutely function 100%. He doesn't have to drive anywhere. Would you say that before your father's death, before this triggering event, did he have a problem with booze then as well? Yes. So when we were dating, um, we would go out on a date, but he, you know, and he, we would have a drink or two and get food or whatever, and then he would go home and I would go home, and I didn't think he had a, a, this bad of a problem. But after we got married... And he, we moved in together, it was like, oh, hey, you drink an awful lot. And I, I knew what I was seeing after we married was something different than what he was when we were dating. He was never drunk. He was never, he was always happy, always nice. He would do fun things. And as soon as we got married, he just, that was it. He just started drinking. Although it, now it's a hundred times worse than it ever has been. A hundred times worse. 
so obviously um, the problem drinking is is pretty huge. Other ways that you witnessed that you as an observer might think were connected to the abuse? Yeah, he'll get very quiet. Um, and he, he just won't talk to anybody. He'll go, he'll sit up in our room um, and just, he'll go to sleep really early. He, he doesn't eat food. He won't take a shower sometimes for days. Um, it's just all depression and anxiety. His anxiety is through the roof about everything. Um, he won't, he won't go to any family gatherings. He won't go to any, um, so we have five boys and they all play baseball. Um, he wouldn't go to their games. Anywhere that he has to be around people, he is not okay with that at all. He's very antisocial, very withdrawn, um, very in his own head. Um, he, he's that to me, along with the drinking, and he won't even go on vacation for that. Like if we go to Cape Cod in the summer, six kids, he won't even go. They go to Florida, won't go. Um, he just stays home so that he can drink and be in his own head. Wow. Yeah. How often does he talk about the abuse with Lately, you? Lately, he's been talking a lot about it because it's been so out there in the news and stuff. But um, before that, I would try to pick his brain. He just would shut down sometimes. But when he has a memory, he will tell me. He will say, I remember this vividly. Um, he'll go so far as to like go on the computer and pull up a map of where he grew up, and he'll say, "This is where we live. This is where um, the 291 overpass is. Where this uh, falls are. You know, all this kind of stuff." He'll show me like things on on the Google map. After you reached out to me a couple of weeks ago, and because I figured out that I knew your husband's family, I went on Google Maps, and because I'd been over his house a million times as a kid. I measured the distance between his house and the bridge where Danny Crota was murdered and his house and the distance to the St. Mary's rectory and his house and the distance to Levine's parents' house. And it's just, you know, all within a mile or two. That area is rich with terrible memories for him. And he will talk about what he remembers. Um, and I've, I've even suggested, like, if he said he'd write it down, um, but that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, he's not he's not ready to do that yet, but wow. but he will. If he has a new memory or something comes out, he will tell me. Um, he doesn't go into great detail with me. Um, I'm like, I think he's embarrassed, to be honest with you. I think he's embarrassed, even though it's not his fault that anything. He has nothing to be embarrassed about at all, but honestly, I think sadly that's how he lives his life. Do you ever go through that neighborhood with him? My in-laws still live in the same house where he grew up, so when we go over there, but I would say maybe maybe one out of five times he would actually be with us. He does not like to go there, which makes sense. I wouldn't want to either if I were him. What has been his interaction with authorities? Has he ever uh, talked to the police about Levine? He did. So last year, I reached out to uh, Jeff Trant with the Catholic Diocese, and I asked him, what can happen? What can help my husband? He struggles with this every day. Um, and so my husband actually ended up agreeing to meet him 
with me for a coffee, which we did. And um, Jeff Chant said, we can't go forward with anything until you talk to the state police and the DA's office. So my husband was interviewed by two um, state police men, um, one, uh, one in Hamden County and then the Ham- two in Hampshire County. So we met with four of them. They were very um, attentive to him. They listened to him. They believed him. They took his statements. And then um, after Levine died, the Hampshire County uh, District Attorney's Office reached out to my husband and thanked him for being so open and honest and asked if he was okay, which I thought was pretty cool. Did your husband ever talk about Levine threatening him? Yes, he did. He, um, he talked about it a couple of times. Um, one particular time that comes to my head was he, he said, do you know what it's like to have blood on your hands or do you know what it's like to watch someone die? And my husband said, no, cause he was just a kid. And he's like, well, then you're not going to talk about this. You're not going to tell anybody because I don't want to have to have blood on my hands again. And that's, to me, that's a huge threat. Especially since your husband was aware of Danny's murder, it's got to be so scary. I mean, we're adults talking about it, but he was a 13-year-old boy. I mean, I can't even imagine. Has your husband had any problems with law enforcement? Uh, no. When he was a kid, he had a DUI, though. He was probably 19, I think he said, when he had that, just one. And then, um, but nothing other than just that. I'm telling you, he's so quiet. He's so, he doesn't, if he could stay in the house and never leave, he would be at his best happiness level ever. What's your family's religious persuasion these days? We're definitely 100% not Catholic. Absolutely not. Um, Currently, I am the only one that goes to church. I don't go to Catholic church, so I was raised to believe in a higher power, and that makes me feel more grounded. So I choose to go to church where I have friends that go to the same church as me and we hang out and do fun things together. And But it's just a Christian Bible-based church that I go to. My husband absolutely, and he, he just said this to me, he said, I don't trust anybody. I especially don't trust God. And that made me so sad because, he, you know, that's all because of what he went through. That's all 100% because of Levine and his, what he did to him. Um, and my kids, we were bringing them, I was bringing them up to Catholic when they were little at first um, because I didn't know any of this stuff had happened. And then as soon as this all came flying out, I said, nope, well, we're done. And so now my kids don't even go to church anywhere. There's just, there's like nothing. I'm the only one. How would you say your husband's abuse has impacted you? Oh, boy. My life is not easy. I'm always sad because I can't fix what happened to him. Our marriage isn't happy. I love him, but it's really it's really awful when I'd rather be alone and away from him because I can't stand the drinking and I can't stand just the not being talked to, the being ignored. And I, I want to fix things, you know, I'm the fixer and I can't fix him. I can't, there's nothing I can do except to support him, which I do do that. But it just, 
it's so difficult. I often sit there and I think, what, what, what's going to happen when all the kids are gone? Are, are we just going to sit there and not talk to each other? Are we just going to sit there and you're just going to drink? Like, it, it's very scary to me to think of the future without with him not getting, you know, proper therapy. And, and even if he does, I don't, I don't even know if proper therapy is going to do much at this point. I mean, he's 61 years old, you know, and this is just what he's used to living. It's it's not it's not easy. It's not easy at all. How many of your five kids are still at home? Uh, sadly, all of them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I had one that just came back um, after a breakup with a girlfriend. But our youngest is 17, um, and then I have the 17, 20, 22, 27, and my 32 year old is still there. <laughs> Um, and to be honest with you, a lot of my 32 year old has a lot of anxiety and I, I feel like it's been rough for them growing up in the situations that they've been grown up in, um, and his anxiety through the roof. And I, I understand why he can't move forward. I just wish he could like just take that step of faith and just move on, but right now he's got a lot of mental health issues. My oldest son really awful. Are the kids aware that their father was abused by a priest? Yes. They all are aware. Um, he actually told them um, my sorry, let's see, her 22-year-old or, no, our 20-year-old, when he was in high school, he had to write, he was in a mystery lit class, and he had to write about an unsolved murder mystery. And they could choose from, one of them on the list was Danny Croto. And he chose that one and because, it, you know, it was local, and he thought it would be kind of cool, and he had no idea at that time. And um, my husband sat them down and said, you know, I just have to tell you guys that this is what happened to me, and... That's when they found out. They're really supportive of him. I mean, they want to help him. They, it's very difficult because they can't just go up to him and say, hey, you know, how are you feeling today, Dad? And it's, there's no open communication between him and any of them, any of us. What is their daily relationship like with their dad? Um, well, now that they're older, I mean, they all kind of have a life and go about it, but they get irritated with him. They almost talk to him like he's a child. I've I've been noticing this more and more the older they get. They like they don't value um their he'll he'll say something or they'll ask for something or an opinion and he'll give his and they'll be like, Well, we'll just go do something totally opposite and they'll be like, Well, you can't you know, I don't even know what he's talking about half the time because he's just so drunk all the time. It's it's really sad. They love him, but they love him because he's their dad. They're sad for him because of his situation, and they disrespect him because he's not doing anything to try to get better at this time, or he's not capable of it. And, you know, kids, they're like, well, if it's broken, go fix it, or whatever, and he's just not there yet to do that. How does the whole family explain his absence from their lives? Like if he doesn't go to sporting events or doesn't go on vacation, how do you guys uh, explain that? My dad had to work. My dad had to work late. 
he's working a double. Oh, he's working the holiday. That's what we all, there's always an excuse as to why he's not at a party or a graduation or anything. What kind of work does he actually do? He works for a cable company. Is that actually a, a possibility? Oh, it is a possibility, absolutely. Okay. I mean, there could be an outage or... Uh, he's like a field engineer. He could have like a big project that he's working on or whatever. So yeah, that's absolutely possible. But after you say it to everybody over and over at every holiday and every gathering and every everything, people are like, yeah, okay. <laughs> they don't believe it either, you know? And that's what the, like with baseball games and stuff, um, that's what my kids would always say. Or if I had three kids playing on three different fields at the same time, it would be so easy for me to just say, well, he's at one of the other fields, so that I didn't look like like everybody's husbands were there, you know, they were coaching or doing whatever, and he was absent all the time, every time. I, I mean, I guess it is a family secret. Do you treat it like a family secret? I think that's what he thought or thinks, but to be honest with you, everyone knows. I mean, when he does show up at an event, he's just drinking away, you know. They all knew. They all knew. It just would say, to me, why do you deal with it? You know, you should kick him out. But they don't, they don't know everything. They don't know about the underlying abuse. They don't know about all of that. Um, but, yeah, they definitely knew that he was totally had a bad problem with alcohol. Do any of his siblings know that he was abused by Levine? Oh, yeah. So he, he told um, his older sister... And his older brother. And then he told his best, his brother that he's closest with, who's just a year younger than him. And then he also told his other brother, who's like a couple years younger. There's there's a bunch of them. So he has talked to them about it. And his parents. Um, He hasn't been open with all of his siblings. Um, but most of them, yeah, they know. Again, the shame that he feels, I mean, if he's feeling that shame with you, it's, it's amplified even more with probably his brothers. Right, and I think um, because his brothers were also involved with this whole thing, um, it was easier for him to talk to. There's three of his brothers he's, he's quite close with, and those two of those brothers were also molested by Levine. So... There's one, two, three, and then the fourth brother um, is just, like, always around them. But he was not abused. He was not molested. Um, And then his sister is kind of like the motherly figure of all of the siblings. So he can speak easily to her, and she's very calm, and she's very soft-spoken, and she's accepting of you no matter how you are. So he's often able to talk to her about things that have happened and ask her about memories that he has, um, you know, different things like that. And she's very, she's very good about listening to him and, you know, hearing what he's saying and not telling him that it's not real or that that didn't happen. Just this whole idea now of, of his brothers. Two, so three of the four boys that would have been in proximity to Levine were molested. Do they speak of the molestation among themselves? One of the brothers does with him. The other one, for whatever reason, 
absolutely will not talk about it. Well, obviously, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about, but as absolutely says, I'm putting that out of my mind, goodbye. He doesn't want to talk about it at all. But his other brother and, and he do speak of it, and they talk about it a lot, especially these past couple of weeks. They've been on the phone a lot talking about stuff. Has that brother that he talks about it with, has that brother reached out to the diocese? Um, he is in the process of doing that. I had He asked me for some telephone numbers, which I shared with him, and he's in the process. He had not done that yet until this all came out, and then we talked about it. Oh, my husband and he talked about it, and then um, we got him the numbers of who to call. But I'm actually not sure if he's going to go through the diocese or if he's just going to go through um, an attorney, talk to an, talking to an attorney. I'm not positive yet, but we did give him all the numbers that he needs and who to contact. At this point in our conversation, we pivot to the present day and the events that transpired in late May when Hamden County DA Anthony Galuni announced that after 49 years, the cops were about to arrest the 80-year-old Levine for the murder of Danny Crodo. Unfortunately, Levine died on May 21, 2021, before the cops could get a warrant. In episode 14 of Devils and Dirtbags, we discuss, in great detail, Levine's confession to being the last one to see Danny alive. I asked Sarah how she learned of Levine's death and the DA's decision to close the case on Danny's murder. Well, at 11 o'clock on Sunday night, I got a message from my niece that said, look at this. And I saw it, it was a Mass Live update, and it said that everything, that he had passed away and that there was going to be a talk about it that was going to happen on Monday. So I found out through that, and then Monday morning, I was really upset because obviously we've been working with the diocese, we've been working with Death Trance, and he did not reach out to us. He did not email, he did not call, he did not text my husband or I, to let us know that this was going to happen. So Monday morning, when I woke up, I'm sitting there going, great, now I have to be the one to tell him that this is all going to be happening, because I needed to prepare him. I couldn't just turn the TV on and say, oh, let's watch the news today, you know, and have it be on there. So I reached out to Jeff Trant in an email, and I said, what is happening um, and he's like, oh, well, I don't know anything. He called me, and he said, I don't know anything other than what you know. Uh, we've been told nothing, which I really had a hard time with. Um, and he said, all we know is that he passed away. And, I'm, and I said, yeah, and he passed away on Friday. They didn't tell you? And he said, no, no, we don't know anything. So yeah, it was, that was useless. So I told my husband. Um, in the morning, and I said, you know, it's going to be on at, I think it was on at 10 o'clock, or tw- no, noontime, it was on at noontime, and I said, well, you know, I'll be right here with you when we watch it, so we did watch it, um, and it was horrible. When they announced, so, so first of all, when I heard that Levine was dead, I was really mad. I was so mad, because I felt like I, as selfishly as that sounds, used to want to go find him somewhere and just say, how could you do this to people? How did you, you ruined my life. You ruined my husband's life. You ruined my kids' lives. 
Like, I was so mad. And, and here he was dead. Obviously, I was never going to do that, but that was what I wanted to do. And so, so he was dead, and this was all happening. And my husband, so we, um, we sat down to watch it, and the DA started talking, and he got into the first couple minutes of it, and he said, so the case on Danny Croto is now closed. And my husband stood up, he started crying, and he said, this is BS. And he walked out of the room, and he slammed the door, he went outside, and he refused to watch any more of it. So he was really upset because because they, they said, you know, we were going to arrest him, or we were getting a warrant to arrest him. And that, that was the hardest thing to swallow, because I don't, I honestly don't believe that at all. <laughs> Not for a minute. I think they were waiting for him to die, and they were just what they did. That's my own opinion. You don't believe the police were preparing to arrest Levine? You, you believe that that's just the story they've prepared? Kind of, yeah. I mean, how convenient. The man died, so now we'll just charge him with a murder, but we can't really because he's dead now. So, okay, that's done. We're done. So Levine killed him. I mean, they should have been doing this. They had 48 years to, to, to convict him. Like, they all knew he did it, and it just seems so convenient, I guess, to me. I was really angry. Like, that's so convenient that now, you know, oh, we have enough, we have enough evidence to convict him? Well, you had enough evidence to convict him a long time ago, and you didn't. And it just really boils my blood. Yeah, I hear you, too. And, and I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I had the same response. And I feel for you on that because of your closeness to this case. And I'm sure a similar thing is going through your husband's brain as well. That's why he walked out of the room and slammed the door, because I asked him. I said, do you feel the same way I do that? They knew this all along. He said, absolutely 100%. They knew this all along. They were just waiting for him to die. That's exactly how he feels. And it, it's so aggravating. Like, that to me is the most aggravating piece of the whole thing. Like, he just waited till he died. He knew he was going to die. How many interviews did you have to do? The guy was on, you could hear the beeping of his monitors in the background while they were talking to him. When they played the tape, like, obviously they knew he was going to die. I don't know. That just really bothered me so much. How did your kids react to the news that Levine was dead? They were like, oh, no. Like, now what's going to happen, Mom? You know, they were, they didn't have the same reaction that I did. Um, they just said, you know, this that's crazy that he's dead. You know, like, they just... They agreed. I mean, when I explained it to them, especially my older ones, well, they're all old, but my older, older ones, I said, you know, they just waited. That's the way I feel. And they said, oh, absolutely. That's just, everybody agreed with that that's what happened. I just feel like he got away with murder. Yes, he totally did. Oh, my God. It's been a couple of weeks since Levine died, and you said your husband has been drinking more than ever every single day? Yes. He has every day he goes to this package store every single day and he walks there. We live not far from one. He will walk to the package store and walk back home. Could you walk me through um, what that day of drinking is like and how it impacts you and the kids? Typically, I am up and out by 8.30 in the morning. But 
when I'm leaving, my car's parked in the back, and usually he keeps his beer in the back, so I find it. He doesn't even put it in the refrigerator. He'll just leave it outside behind the house, and he'll have one open, and then I go to work. Typically, I'm usually home around 1 o'clock, but he's in his... So the front part of our house, he's got it set up with his computers and everything, and he's working from home in there. And um, there's a trash bag on the floor on the side of the couch filled with beer cans. He'll have beers lined up on the computer. So he's probably a good maybe eight in by the time I get home at one o'clock in the afternoon. And then he won't eat food, so he doesn't eat dinner. And he'll just continue drinking until probably eight o'clock at night. And then he'll go upstairs and he'll pass out. And then he just starts right back again in the morning. And it's frustrating for me because I just want to, I get so mad. I just want to throw it away and say, you have to face this. We have to figure this out. This isn't a solution. Um, but I, I've almost given up. I used to throw the beer away. I used to take his debit card. Now I just don't even bother. And the kids get mad. They'll ask him to do something or he'll be very, um, almost belligerent, like, like for example, a fuse blew in our house tonight because I, we turned the air conditioner on downstairs, and he got really mad, and he started yelling, and like, we don't need an air conditioner, like, everything is blown out of proportion, and my older son, my 22-year-old, he, he came in the room, and he said, you know what, we're done, we're done with this conversation, you go outside and deal with whatever you need to do out there, go drink, so they almost baby him, you know, they just... They just don't, there's no relationships. They don't have relationships with their dad. It's really sad. Just to clarify this, you said he, he keeps the beer outside. Does that mean he's drinking warm beer? Yes, he is. I can't make that up. Uh, it's gross. And he doesn't even care. He just leaves it out there. Has he ever been physically abusive to you or the kids? Never. He's never laid a hand on me or the kids. He's very passive. Like I said, he'll just, he usually doesn't yell. It's when he gets really frustrated and he's really drunk that he might be verbally yelling a little bit. Um, but he's never, ever laid hands on me. He, like I said, he'll go right upstairs and go to bed. And like, it's usually like six thirty, seven o'clock, he's out. Does anybody else in the house drink? I mean, the kids, you know, they're older now, so... They'll drink with friends or whatever. A couple of them play softball now, and they'll drink after their softball game, but nothing like him because they're disgusted. I don't drink. I can understand why. Now it's been a couple of weeks since Levine's death. Have you felt any change in your reactions? How are you dealing with that? It's really not changed. I mean, I'm a little less irritated um, about it because, you know, I've come to the realization that I can't do a thing to change it. Um... But it's just, I still get frustrated and heated up when I think about it. Because I just think it's just just a waste. And like you said, he got away with murder. He didn't spend one second in jail. I mean, he got, what, probation? Big deal. That's nothing. Go visit your probation officer. Maybe you'd, you know, get a drug test. But that's it. Like, that's nothing. And he killed someone. And he ruined millions of people's lives. It's just awful. This makes me so angry. (sighs) I'm right there with you. I'm, this conversation tonight has made me even angrier, and I, I thought that was impossible. 
A couple of weeks before Levine died, you actually sent me an email. That's how we started communicating. And you said that uh, listening to the podcast answered many questions for you. I'm curious to know what questions were answered and how does that impact you now? Your podcast was amazing. I literally listened to it day and night for straight for like, I don't know, a week. It was in my ear, but going. Um, You talked about the things that my husband was saying to me. And it made it, I don't know if it made it real, more real. I mean, it's not that it wasn't real, but it just, like, verified everything that he was saying because, it, I guess, because it was coming from someone else's mouth. I don't know, but it was just really opened up my eyes. And I was like, I get why you act like this. I get why you drink every day. I understand what's going on. And I had no idea at that time. I mean, I just stumbled up upon your podcast because I love to listen to podcasts. And I thought, I wonder if there's any podcasts about Danny Croto. And that's how I ended up finding yours. And um, it just, I was addicted. And it was, I shared it with a billion people. I'm, all my friends, I'm like, you got to listen to this. You got to listen. You got to listen. And um, it just, it just answers a bunch of questions that I had about how my husband acts and what happened and where these priests were moved around to and what they were doing. And, and, and especially it was interesting when you went to visit, um, at Christmas time, father X, I think you called him. And then, and listening to him talk. And then when you went to interview, went to interview, no, but when you went to Levine's house, it was like, Oh my gosh like what I want to do. Like I wanted to be you. <laughs> so I could have gone there. Has your husband heard the podcast? Have you told him about the podcast? Um, he has not listened to it. I did tell him about it. I said, it's, it's really good. You should listen to it. Um, but he's, I don't think he's anywhere near that yet. I hope someday he will listen to it and know that he isn't alone. And I, I don't think that he thinks he's alone, but I feel like just like I said, hearing someone else talk about it and hearing uh, just listening to it I think would help him. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we haven't covered? I think we've covered a lot. Um, I just I can say one thing um, in my line of work it's really hard for me to separate my from my job of being a domestic violence advocate and a sexual assault advocate. Um, it's hard for me to help my husband and, and I get frustrated with that because I can put that hat on and I can help five women in one day. And yet I can't put that hat on to, I guess, fix him or help him. Um, and it really frustrates me sometimes. You know, I can't just say, oh, let me refer you to this or let me refer you to that because he's my husband. And it breaks my heart to see him go through this and suffer. And it makes me angry that he doesn't have or he's not willing to have at this point in time the help that he needs to work through some of this stuff. But hopefully, as we move through, you know, go forward from here, hopefully he'll get that strength. I just don't want to see him go to his grave someday without having some type of, like, closure or answers or, or, or something to help him. He needs therapy. What about some sort of intervention? Is that possible? I've thought of that, but I, I feel like at this point, um, right now, he might it might make him more angry, but 
he can't keep going on like this. I mean, the alcohol is going to kill him. And how sad that would be. I have to come up with something to do to try and help him. I mean, I think like an inpatient detox and intensive therapy would be the way to go, but I feel like he would just find himself out at this time. He doesn't do good with authority. He's very, he's very difficult to help at this point, I guess. I was actually given the name of a therapist, um, a female therapist. She was also molested as a child by a priest. And she's a therapist who may be the one um, that he would trust to talk to. So I feel like it has to be somebody that understands what he's going through 100%. <sighs> wow. I know I'm speaking for everyone here, and I you know, wish I could give you a hug right now because you're really putting up with uh, an amazing, 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 amazing burden that you didn't have any clue you were walking into. and. The fact that you're sticking by him is really commendable and shows your compassion. And I thank you for that because this guy is obviously in need of compassion. But he's also in need of some friggin' help. There's never been a better time than right now because it's out in the open now. You know, this is his chance. I mean, I'm assuming at some point there's going to be grandkids probably and there's going to be a whole life after retirement. It's not over yet for him. I mean, his his dad must be 90. That's my I mean, I don't Yeah, he's 91. So, I mean, he has another 30 years if he if he can get off the sauce. Yep. Thank you very much for giving us some really detailed insight on the struggle of both the victim and the victim's family. It's just terrible, terrible, terrible spider web of pain and suffering. It's overwhelming to me. No, and I'm glad that have been able to to talk with you and i i'm really appreciative of your your time um because this is like a crazy thing and i can't be the only one that's going through this and if anybody can or listen to this podcast and be helped that would be amazing Devils and Dirtbags is produced by me, Crash Barry. Please rate, review, and subscribe and spread the word about the podcast. Special thanks to the woman I'm calling Sarah for sharing her sad tale. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. On the day this episode was published, I boarded a bus to Western Massachusetts. I've got some interviews lined up and some door knocking to do.